Hey, Cinephile fans, this is John. This week, we are talking 1995's Heat. That's right. The film directed, written, and co-produced by Michael Mann that stars Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Val Kilmer, Ashley Judd, Hank Azaria, John Voight, Tom Sizemore, and a who's who of incredible actors and character actors, and a very young Natalie Portman still making her way here in Hollywood. This is a fantastic film that so many people waited for in 1995. The idea of Robert De Niro and Al Pacino sharing the screen and that cafe scene in the movie has become so iconic we're going to break this film down this week talk about why we loved it what we uh, what we enjoyed about the film and also what its legacy still is so many years later 23 years later in the lexicon of crime films and in the lexicon of film so join us this week as steve and i talk about 1995's heat Remember Jimmy McElwain on the yard used to say, you want to be making moves on the street, have no attachments, allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner. Remember that? Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I am a voiceover artist, producer, writer, host uh, for Collider, uh, also for the Top Ten Show, and uh, possibly two new shows coming in 2019. We'll see if I can get this scored away, but... Because you have so much extra time yeah, for know, more shows. We were just talking off camera about how much little time I have, but a couple of things have kind of come up, and I'm interested in exploring them, and we'll see how it goes. But but it will require me uh, making some changes in my living arrangement to make it possible. So we'll see. You have to live in a room with a built-in mic above your bed. <laughs> That's right. So you can roll out of bed, immediately begin podcasting. Look, my ultimate goal <laughs> is to be rich enough where, like, I have that whole setup there at my house, and people can come comfortably and record episodes at my place. Will there be hot hors d'oeuvres served? Either hot hors d'oeuvres or we punch and pie. Uh, well, then I'm in. <laughs> I fully endorse this plan. Nice, comfortable leather couches, and people sit in with nice, comfortable headphones. That's the goal. Well, if we were there right now, I would still be saying that we are about to talk about what I think is one of your favorite films. Absolutely. Just 1995, Michael Mann's Heat. Yeah, man. So uh, much. And, and, and by the way, this is also some of our... Our patrons' favorite films, mm -hmm. and we have to thank Jake Blackman and our probably one most important supporter, Clay Williams. Hey, Clay. This is his one of his picks, and Clay, for those of you who are on Patreon, know that he has been helping us, which we desperately needed to help manage, making sure that our patrons are taken care of and that our, their picks are gotten to, and we are so grateful to all his support. And I, without further ado, I would love to hear the reason that Clay and Jake picked this film. Hey, John and Steve, Jake Blackman here from Hawthorne, California. If there's anything I'd want to say about Michael Mann's Heat, it's that I believe that this movie is the last great movie that both Robert De Niro and Al Pacino have been in since the release of the movie in 1995. I mean, they both had the, probably the most historic careers in the film industry over the last 40 years. But uh, in my opinion, neither have been as good as they were since this trailblazing masterpiece. Hey, John and Steve, this is Clay Williams from Portland, Oregon again. The reason why I wanted you guys to choose Heat is because I find that my favorite thing in storytelling is duality. And 
I find that to be perfectly realized in Heat, directed by Michael Mann. He perfectly illustrates the yin-yang of Robert De Niro's criminal to Al Pacino's cop. It has you root for both of them. But you as the viewer know it's never going to be a truly happy ending. And seeing it all play out through the movie, you can't help but marvel at the brilliance of Michael Mann. All right. Well, wow. thanks so much. Yeah. That's great. Great words from those guys. Do you remember how you first came to Heat? Yeah, in the theater. Uh, went to see it, saw the trailer. And at this time, and, you know, Stephen, you and I are contemporaries in terms of age. And you see, you you remember that this was a huge deal. Pacino and De Niro sharing the screen together in a Michael Mann film. And I've been a, a fan of Michael Mann since the 80s and Miami Vice and Crime Story and all that. So the movies, his Last of the Mohicans, these other movies that have come just before this movie. And so this idea that they were coming together in a cop, a, a cops and robbers drama, just made me so excited. And I remember going to see it opening weekend and just being overwhelmed by the film. Had no idea it was going to be almost three hours long. So much, and and I didn't know anything about L.A. Like watching the film now, I know almost every place right. they do the film, they shoot the locate every location they shoot the film in. But at the time, L.A. was this magical place to me, and to see it portrayed this way on screen, to see the the uh, underbelly of L.A. a little bit was a very interesting experience for me um, uh, when I saw the film in the theaters. Well, before I tell you how I first came to it, okay, I would like to take a moment to discuss a very serious. And sad disease. Okay. Uh, I don't know the clinical or Latin name, but the, the colloquial name for it is um, film student asshole syndrome. <laughs> you laugh. You laugh, but this is very serious. Oh, I know. I've seen them on it's Twitter. very sad. And it, what happens is it, it, it's usually caused by the first or second year of film school and an over-infection mm-hmm. um, with postmodern theory and watching silent and abstract films and foreign films until it 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 uh its symptoms are a complete hypercriticalness a uh rejection of all things popular and a need to cut down anything that anybody else likes right and this is the first time i'm admitting it on this venue but i suffered from this wow syndrome and in 1995, I was in the throes of it. <laughs> and I did go to see Heat in the theater. Right. And I probably pompously and arrogantly poo-pooed the film and sure. probably cut it down in front of all my friends who probably really liked it. Mm-hmm. And the more popular I heard that it was, the more I claimed I didn't like it. And I didn't watch it again. You took pride in not liking it. In cutting it down. Yeah. And what's so funny is, you know, once I recovered from this terrible and debilitating <laughs> disease and realized what a jerk I had been, yeah. I knew and had heard that Heat was supposed to be really, really good. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I knew it was one of your favorite films and heard you talk about it. I'd listed. I don't know how many times you listed it on top ten. Yeah, probably a million. Times. It's come up a lot, mm-hmm. and so I knew it was really good. But I actually never went to watch it until this last week. Oh wow! So. And, and, and what's so crazy is, yeah. I don't know what the hell I was thinking. <laughs> it is so good, it is. and it is such a great, beautifully filmed and beautifully made movie. Like, I can't imagine what, like, you know, 26-year-old me was thinking right. to not like this movie. Those are the days, man. Those are yeah. the days. I mean, there are, there are plenty of people who are listening to us now who are recovering or, from that suffering. disease or suffering from and that And for those of you who are out there, there is help. <laughs> yeah, there is it's called growing up. Yeah. <laughs> and then eventually you mature and you realize it's not all so serious as people make it out to be. It's just film. We can love it, 
don't turn it into an anal appreciation of it. That's where I think is the is that. But I went through it too, so I get it. I get it. You know, you look down. Wait, on you suffered things. as well? I did for a few years when I first got into films, like really got into films, because you start to like make fun of these other films, and you don't understand how people could possibly like these other films. But one of the greatest things that opened it up for me or opened my mind up was when someone said, "Hey, it's just an opinion." Exactly. And I was like, "Oh, what? What? No." Well, and the, th- wrong. The, the thing that I got to is like, oh, it's show business. Right. Like, it's an oh, entertainment. Yeah. It's an entertainment. Yeah. You're supposed to be entertained. And that if you liked it, then you liked it. Yeah. Well, yeah. In particular, I think the worst symptom of this disease <laughs> is the if it's popular, it must be bad. Right. That's like, oh, yeah. if everybody likes it, then I'm not going to like it. Yeah. That's just stupid. Yeah, I agree thoroughly. I'm going to go find this most obscure, independent film, and I will trumpet it as better than anything popular. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in conclusion, my, my final thoughts <laughs> are that he's really On good. On this particular section, yes. Um, but uh, would you like to talk a little bit about pre-production? I'd love to, yeah. So, obviously, this starts with Michael Mann, and it starts with a police officer he came to know in Chicago whose name is Chuck Adamson. And this guy is the real deal. And it seems like this guy's inspiration. And by the way, I should say, I'm going to defer to you because you know this movie. I mean, I've crammed on it for Mm -hmm. about a week, but you know this movie way better than I do. So if you want to jump in, I'm sure you have more. Sure. Um, But but Chuck Adamson, as he got to know this guy, actually pursued a real criminal named Neil McCauley. Yep. Uh, And this guy sounds like he was the real deal. Mm -hmm. He was in Alcatraz. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, that to me just right there is a crazy, growing up in San Francisco, like a dude that was actually in Alcatraz, and he ran a very, very professional crew that took down really big scores, and this guy, Chuck Adamson, chased him for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, and and the stories of this brought to Michael Mann are the beginning of the screenplay, and it was also at this time that he met Dennis Farina, and that he met these other cops, and then came in contact with with real criminals, and it sounds like... You know, it sounds like Michael Mann does everything that I really like, which is he did real research, mm-hmm. like went out on uh, ride-alongs with cops to the point where he did it so much that they were handing him a gun. Wow. When they when they rolled in a situation, one of the the detectives had an extra sidearm, and it's like, here, why don't you why don't you hold on to this? Yeah, I mean, he took it real seriously. Badass man. It is a little badass. Um, and he wrote the first draft of Heat in 1979. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, too, because I think this is this hybrid of a 70s movie mm-hmm. and a 90s movie. Yep. It's What's funny, you know what? It, it doesn't relate to it as a film, but is another film that's like that is Unforgiven that we talked about. Mm. Written in the 70s, right after Taxi Driver, mm-hmm. not produced until the early 90s, and it has that mix of those feelings. I think this one has that, too. That's a fair point, yeah. Yeah. And... Um, and then, of course, he can't sell that movie, so he goes on and becomes a big hit mm-hmm. doing Miami Vice and Crime Story. And this are some of the biggest TV shows on television at the time. Mm-hmm. And NBC goes, what else you got? <laughs> and he goes, well, I've got this movie. Yeah. And he go- they decide to turn it into a series. Yeah. Um, have, LA, you se- have you seen it? LA Takedown. Have you seen it? Uh, yeah, I have. How is it? I haven't seen it. It's, for the time... It's consumable. That's what I would say, especially because you're, as we've said, as I just said earlier, we are contemporaries in that in, right. in the age. You would get it, but it is dated. It has a it's it, an eighty. It's a little long in the tooth. I would right. say, yeah. Um, and and it, they, the idea was they would shoot it as a pilot for a series, and then uh, and it was starring I think um, Scott Plank as as Vincent Hanna mm-hmm. and Alex uh, MacArthur as Neil. Yeah. 
And then NBC, they didn't like Plank, and they said, take him out. And Michael Mann refused, and they killed the show. Yep. And so then they released it just as a movie of the week. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of it for that until years later we get to the 90s and he's become a you know he's become an actual filmmaker and he's made a bunch of he made manhunter uh last time he was before this i believe and producer art linson saw the script and said wait a minute why aren't we doing this and now they pull out because they had trimmed it down and cleaned it up and made it much simpler to be ready for tv right. and of course through this whole time from 79 through turning it into a tv show in the 80s and then even into the 90s he continued to revisit the script and make it deeper and more complex and get more into all the characters and i think that's something that just shows so much yeah. and linson goes let's do it and they go out to their very first acting choices which are De Niro and Pacino, mm -hmm. and they say yes. Yeah, De Niro even says if they had offered him the other part, he would have said yes. Yeah, he saw he saw himself more as a challenge to play the other part, the Vincent Hanna part, than the Neil Macaulay part. Uh, and I like that instinct in De Niro, especially at ninety five. Right, Good, Goodfellas is right around the corner. You know, no, he's already done it. Goodfellas yeah, yeah. is like ninety one. Is it really? Oh, okay, okay, it's so, before. So, so he's still. So he's like. Fully established himself in the firmament, really nailed down this idea of a criminal. So why not try being a cop a little sure. bit more? You know, I think I, Mad Dog and Glory is around this time, maybe right around. I'm not sure yeah. which is first. Well, it's so funny because wouldn't it be great if there was another movie with them flopped? Yeah, I would. I would totally watch that movie. Mm -hmm. It would be fascinating, um, impossible but fascinating. <laughs> Shall we get into the movie? Yeah, let's that, do it. So there's this just quiet drone to a big title, and then we come into a. MTA station, which is smoking, and already this movie looks like it's going to be different. Mm -hmm. It has a different style, a different color palette, and a different feel, and musically it's very different. Um, and it's a MTA station that was hadn't opened to the public yet. It hadn't been completed. And what I didn't realize, that opening shot is the exact same location as the closing of Collateral. Yep. <laughs> it's an L.A. trilogy, right? It's this film and Collateral, and there's another one coming down the pike that he wants to do to finish out his L.A. trilogy. Collateral is connected to a heat in that way. And so uh, it's not surprising when you hear that what you just said, that it, it ends where it starts. And there'll be other right. connections whenever he finishes the third one. But this... What I also like about this intro, Steve, is it feels very reminiscent to Blade Runner. Sure. Where you have the kind of the dark lights and this smoke coming out and it's, you know, you're walking into this city that you, from a different angle that you haven't walked right. into it before. And you get uh, Neil McCauley right off the bat. You get De Niro, uh, just the face, the look, and it's very reminiscent of, of what you get with Vincent in uh, in uh, Collateral, Tom Cruise's character right. as well. When he first appears, it's very... To the point, very much what he's got to do, blah blah blah. I love that that vibe. Well, and the, and it's so great, you know. As we're going to get farther along, the contrast between the way De Niro does that character yeah. and what Al Pacino does with yeah. Vincent, yeah, is just a study in different approaches mm -hmm. to defining character. And you, you may have this in your notes, but there's a background thing about Pacino's character that I'll bring up when we get into yeah, yeah. it a little bit more. Yeah. So De Niro heads down an escalator, goes into a a medical facility. There's quick cuts of patients, and one of the things that's so interesting, you jump right in on this in this movie. Yep. We don't know what's going on. We don't know where we're going. We don't know why we're here. We don't know what's happening. And we see De Niro move through this hospital, and then he goes out the door. And one little key, but very small detail, he opens that door with his elbow, mm -hmm. and that's like already he's not going to leave fingerprints, mm -hmm. you know. And it's little details like that that I love in throughout this film. Mm -hmm. And he gets in an ambulance. And then we cut to Val Kilmer. 
And I think this is peak Kilmer era. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Peak badass Kilmer. Yeah. Tombstone, Heat. This is all around this time. Yeah. yeah. The Doors is a couple the of doors, years yeah. earlier. Yes. Like, he is so huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was such a big Val Kilmer fan yeah. at this point. Well, you're in the middle of film school assholeness. So I still like Kilmer, Kilmer would be your guy. Kilmer would be your guy. Uh, that's a fair point. Yeah. Um, he hated Tom Cruise on Top Gun. You know, he, exactly. Against the popular stuff. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah. The, you're actually you're 100% <laughs> right. I didn't know that's why I liked him, but I did. Him and Gary Oldman, man. Oh, wow, that's quite a partnership. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're in Tucson at some construction demolition place, and he's buying a thing. And again... We don't know what's going on. Right. We don't know exactly why this is happening. Did you do? You, and do you know that actor who's selling him no. demolition? Who's that? That's the actor who gets eaten by the Tyrannosaurus Rex in Jurassic <laughs> Park, sitting on the toilet. The lawyer. <laughs> oh my god! That's of course, the same it is. actor. I didn't think about that at all. Even yep. though we just did Jurassic Park recently. Yep. Same actor. And now we cut to Pacino with a woman. Yeah. In bed, which is very strange, isn't it? Pacino love scenes are very strange. I I know that he <laughs> makes love. I know that he's had relationships. Oh, he makes love. <laughs> but it's very strange to watch him or De Niro in love scenes. It's very difficult. There's such badasses outside of bed that it's weird to see them in bed. Well, they have not been very romantic. You're right. In their, I mean, like, I'm just going through, like, Taxi Driver, King of Comedy. Well, De Niro had falling in love with Meryl Streep. True. And then there was that weird, that New York, New York thing with Liza Minnelli, which was horrific no, to that's watch. Terrible. Times. Uh, but Pacino has Diane Keaton and the woman who gets killed in Italy. And you're right. It, these are not comfortable. We got or a lot of, of sc- love. Scarface. Scarface, yeah. Or it's, Sea it's, of Love with the uh, Barkin, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of. You're, you're right. That, a lot of romantic comedy. That was not their strong suit. Um, and um, again, there's sort of a very montage uh style that's kind of moving in and out of time. And it's a little later. Uh, his girlfriend, which is Justine, or his wife, Justine, is lighting a cigarette, mm-hmm. and in comes a young Natalie Portman, yeah, who is very troubled as a character and troubling. Yes, because you immediately—I think she does a great job—and you immediately go, "Oh, this this girl has problems. Yes, there's issues here." And she's very upset because she can't find her barrette, and her dad is supposed to be picking her up. Mm-hmm. And you're again, we're dropped in the middle, so you're like, "Wait." He was in bed with her mom, but he is not her dad. Right. Is, is he? The, they don't say, "Oh, we're married," and you know, is a boyfriend. What did he? Is a long term relationship? Did he just show up? But then you're kind of watching. Well, she's not reacting like it's strange that he's here. So you're yeah. kind of trying to figure it out. Um, and now we hear you're going to show, and a son of a bitch going to stand her up like last time. His relationship to the Natalie Portman character I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot to it. And as the film goes on, it yeah. becomes the central relationship for him in his life. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting... Mm-hmm. Well, because he certainly does, we will see, care about her. He does. In a deep, real way. Well, And as a cop, he cares about her because what's the thing? To protect and to serve. Right. He's trying to protect her. Oh. And she's kind of helpless in the world that yeah. she's in right now uh, to her terrible father and her mom, who at times can be a bit distracted from her needs. Well, and this is actually, because that was the next thing I was going to say, mm. because we see mom go off and take some pills. Yep. And so there's a kind of detachment from mom. Yeah. And at this moment, we see him seeing the detachment, mm. and he seems more connected on some level, which is strange considering where we're going to end up with his character. Right. You know, in terms of how connected he is 
to this world mm-hmm. as opposed to the world of crime because what we see next is that he picks up a gun. And at this point, we don't know he's a cop. Right. You know, we don't know who he is. We don't know exactly what. And of course, you probably saw the trailer, so yeah. maybe you knew that he was a cop. <laughs> yeah. But it's all kind of these details that are coming through. And what's great is, Steve, they don't start like a Bond film. There's not a big heist, a big nope. action sequence. No, you're dropped, like you said, you're dropped into these worlds of these people and you're getting uh, samples of who these people are, right? right. With Neil, there's not a lot of background until the ambulance takes off. With uh, Val Kilmer, it's a hard-ass look. When that guy asks him for a little more information, just gives him a hard-ass yep. look, and that's that. And with Pacino, it's more of this situation that he's in. He's having to navigate this familial relationship, which is very interesting. So all these guys in their different worlds before we get into any kind of connection or relationship between them. Well, and the thing I think we see in the Pacino scene, which we're going to see throughout this movie, is what I would call the iceberg effect, mm. which is that you get that there's stuff here. Mm -hmm. You don't know what it is, but you know that it's deep. And I think part of that comes from, he wrote the script in 79 and continued to work on it for another 15 years. And then I also think part of it is bringing in these actors and who are going to fill out that stuff because with every, and there are no minor characters in this movie. There are no throwaway characters, right? Everybody we meet, we're going to feel like, Oh, there's a history here. There's complexity here. Um, Speaking of uh, someone we're going to meet, we now meet Wangro. Yeah, Wangro, you son of a bitch. This is a scary dude. In the history of film, Steve Morris, okay. there is not one character that I've hated more than Wangro. Wow. From birth to death, there will never be a character I hate more than Wangro in any film. Any villain, anything, there's just something about the combination of uselessness that Wayne Grow is. And destructiveness. And pure evil. And evil. Yeah, psychopathic evil that Wayne Grow is that makes him the most evil character I've ever experienced. It's film. interesting that well, you say that. Well, we, well, that's what I think is most the distinction. Hated, which is most evil. Yeah. Because, because we've talked about some really good villains. Yeah. We talked about Hannibal Lecter. We've talked about uh, Antoine uh, Chigur yeah. in, uh, Country. in No Country. Yeah. We talked about, um, there's some other really good villains we've yeah. had. Yeah, we have. Who are, who are more evil than this guy. Mm-hmm. But, I, but there's something that draws you to those people. Yeah. And as film characters, you like them. You like Hannibal Lecter in some weird way. I mean, yeah. he's a pure evil mm-hmm. serial killer. There's nothing like him about this guy. There's no charm to this guy. No. And he is, uh He's a flat-out loser, but when you find out how much of a, how much... And he's dangerous. Yes. And mean and crazy, yeah. and um, and he gets in a truck with Tom Sizemore. This, I think, is among his best roles. Sizemore is great in this film. He's great in this movie. Sees, he, like what De Niro, or what uh, Brando describes in Apocalypse Now, when he's talking about the caterpillar walking on the knife's edge... Uh, or razor blades edge. That is Tom Sizemore throughout this whole movie. Oh, that's interesting. At any point, he can cut himself or cut everything around him, and he's just like, he's just so wound tight. Yeah, he's so wound in this movie, man. But but controlled. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's what's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, he's and, a bazooka in human form. And there's a little conversation about this being a crew that's run a long time, and pretty much Tom Sizemore character, which is Michael, calls him slick yep. and has him stop talking. He shuts him down. Yeah, this works good. I'd consider going again, you know? Yeah, stop talking, okay, Slick? And Wayne is pissed. Yeah, there's there's definitely a dirty look there. Mm -hmm. And now we got De Niro. He's in the ambulance. He's radioing over to Danny Trejo, whose character (laughs) I think is named Trejo. Trejo. (laughs) How's he doing? 100%. Right on schedule. 
we're in the middle of some plan. We don't know what the plan is. You know, they're they're moving in closer to each other. Val Kilmer's also in the ambulance. We have that great score from Elliot Goldenthal. It's a really unique score. They did a lot of a lot of uh, experimental percussion and yeah. brought in different instruments. And it sounds unlike. I think this is a like an important film score moment in history. It's a very unique score. Yeah. It's fantastic. When it changes what people feel like they can, it has this urban, unique, um, rhythmic, uh, droning feel to it. Mm -hmm. That's very, very groundbreaking, I think. There's kind of a get set and everyone is set Mm -hmm. um, and all of them put on their masks and truck pulls up, the ambulance has his sirens going and an armored car stops naturally for the ambulance because that's what you do. And then big, in comes this big green truck slams into that ambulance, flips it, drags it. Apparently, it's not easy to flip an armored car. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. That was a big, like, they had to really do some physics on some serious tonnage to knock that thing over. Mm-hmm. That guy's in the armored car. They call for help. We got guys for guns coming out. Um, they look at their stopwatch, and we got three minutes. And I love the time because that makes us know this is a crack crew. Yep. Now we find out that the things that Val Kilmer bought is explosives because he blows out the back of that armored car and all those windshields of all the cars blow out. It is awesome. They drag out the guards. They're moving fast and efficient. They look through, we're looking through the packages and gunmen are scanning the area and they pull out the spikes, which I think are called caltrops. Mm -hmm. uh, And you just see the efficiency of this group. And we hear 80 seconds left. And then one of the guys, which is, of course, Wayne Grow, mm-hmm. hits one of the guards. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> he, sa- he says he was talking back to him yeah. or something. Mm-hmm. And what's, what's great in this moment is you see, oh, he's crazy. Yeah, he's legitimately crazy. And he's wound up in a situation yep. uh, where all his worst instincts can come out to play. Yep. And it happens all through this scene. Hey, Slick. That shit coming out of the ears, they can't fucking hear you. Cool it. Yeah. Which is like a very seems like a reasonable point. And the guards do a great job here, the actors, just pure fear on their faces. Yep. Yep. Pure helplessness and fear. Right. It's great. And still Wayne Gross looking at this one guy going, Yeah, don't fuck with me. You want to fuck with me? And then he shoots him in the head. For no fucking reason, man. Yep. Wayne Grow. Yep. You asshole. And then the guards, of course, they go for guns, yeah. and we open fire. And it's a tragic moment. This is a tragic moment. Mm-hmm. You know, this was you get. It's very clear that none of our main guys wanted to kill anybody. Yep, because that brings attention. But it's also very clear that as soon as it's time to kill, they're going to kill. Yeah, they have to. They uh, have to because it's between them and yeah. as as Daniel will say later, if it's between you and some going back to prison, that is no decision at all. Yep. And the one guy who didn't reach for his gun and wants to live, probably has kids and a wife and a home, he begs them not to kill him. But then De Niro gives the uh, gives the sign to have him killed, execution style. Yep. And it's a shame. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is what this movie is going to do throughout this film, is you're going to find yourself liking people that are yes. really not good people. Yep. You know, because... You're right. That guard was just innocent. It's a great point you make, Steve. You're vacillating between the, the enjoyment of the badassery of these people versus the terribleness of their actions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, and particularly, as we go along, it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep going. Yep. Um, on both sides. On both sides. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, well, that's one of the fascinating things <laughs> I kept doing watching. It's like, who, which one of these guys do I like yeah. more? Yeah. And I 
I kept having problems with making that decision. That's why they call it heat. Yeah. Is that why they call it heat? Yeah. It's burning up. It's not easy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and as they're leaving, there's a, what the fuck are you doing towards yeah. Wingro? Because mm-hmm. um, clearly he has, he has broken the rules. They strip down the ambulance. And just as they're heading out, the cop cars are pulling in. Of course, their tires get blown out on the caltrops. Um, and the next set of cars stop. They're out of the out ambulance. Val Kilmer, whose name is Chris, leaves a bomb in the ambulance. Mm-hmm. I mean, this stuff all moves really fast. Yep. And the cops are already investigating the scene, and our guys are driving away in a station wagon just as the, as the ambulance blows up. Uh, later on, we're at a parking lot. There's John Voigt, who has changed a lot since we last saw him run, <laughs> canoeing down a river in Georgia. That's right, Deliverance. His character is wacky and yeah. is uh, playing Nate, who I guess is sort of the handler, um, fence guy. Yep. He's our contact man. And, and, and he lays out this deal that just seems so stupid to me. Mm-hmm. Which is, we stole some bonds by, from some criminal. That criminal is going to claim the insurance on the bonds. So why don't we just sell the same bonds back to him for 60%? Because he's just a businessman, and what will be the problem? Mm-hmm. This seems like a terrible plan. Possibly, but it also seems like a safer plan, safer route, because if you because if he, he's already getting the insurance money, if he pays for the bonds on the side... He's made, he's made, he's profited all around on the situation. Well, yeah, but then he's committed insurance fraud. Sure. And if the bonds are worth some money, I just don't think it's a good plan. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> but also, it's funny. There's something we came up with at Goodfellas a long yeah. time ago is all the reasons why I would not be a mas- massive criminal. Because this all seems very risky. <laughs> <laughs> well, this... <laughs> Well, and the thing is uh, interesting as you look at it, John Voight's character is supposed to be um, reminiscent of a, a guy with, uh, I think he's a half Native American guy. Mm-hmm. And you can see with some of the design, some of the clothes right. design that uh, John Voight wears uh, that he's uh, you know, kind of evoking that, you know, and the look and the feel of him. And you're right. It's a great change of pace for John Voight to play a character this grizzled, but with like the pock marks in his face yeah. and the kind of, you know, the stubble and the weird mullet, everything about him and the jacket. It's such a great distinct unique character in this world of crime you know? yeah totally well and there's an interesting relationship yes. between well and this is the thing we're going to see throughout this movie is de niro's character has relationships mm-hmm. and how much he ca- and his whole thing is you have to be able to cut everything off at once and yet there is clearly as we see throughout the movie a voight's character cares about him yeah you know, they have a thing. Yeah. And, and he's also the guy who's setting up the next job because he now says, oh, by the way, there's going to be another job coming in, eight figures. Right. Um, and so immediately we're talking about what's next. And just at the end of the scene, uh, Voight asks. What happened out there? Don't ask. We're in this POV shot in the car behind Al Pacino's head. And we're going to be in this shot a bunch of times. And we pull in through the cop cars and... Even the way Pacino walks is interesting. Yeah, He's got a swagger mm-hmm. and a stride and a nervous energy mm-hmm. that is fascinating to see at every moment. He's a spark plug walking. Oh, yeah. And uh, the thing about it, I'll bring it up now, I guess, is uh, the backstory with that character is that he's a... F- uh, and then Michael Mann wrote this out, and there were scenes that he wrote now. He's a former coke addict. Oh, so he's a cop. That makes perfect sense. Right? Because the way Pacino... Like people, a lot of people get upset with the way Pacino plays this character in Heat, but you have to throw that into the mix. That's how he was told this character was. So what Pacino is doing, 
the bursts of energy, the bursts of loud voices or loud uh, words or whatever, it comes from him being a recovering coke addict and he's got this, you know, this thing. So he was a great cop, decorated cop, but the coke uh, is what almost brought him down. And so you have all this playing around with him and why he's so obsessed to catch things. That's why he has obsessive nature. Most addicts have an obsessive nature. He's obsessed with Neil. Well, and what's what's interesting about his manner, yeah, is sometimes I go like, is this a show mm. to to get people to do what to intimidate to right. throw people off their rhythm to do all this stuff because he does, and it's, it's funny because I, I kind of been through this movie. I watched the movie, I watched the commentary track, mm. and then as I'm doing all my notes and going through them, I was like, I'm gonna have to watch that scene again to make sure I really get it. So there are a bunch of scenes, probably a third or half of the movie that I ended up watching again, mm-hmm. and. Pacino's character was off-putting to me at the beginning. And then the more I watched him, the more I sort of settled in and kind of started to love it. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a lot of a lot mm-hmm. at times, but it is something. It takes a really good actor to pull it off, too. Oh, well, yeah. Well, he certainly got that. <laughs> um, so we're in the crime scene investigation. Those are real, a lot of real LAPD technicians mm-hmm. looking around. We're getting kind of reports on everything, and we meet our cops, which are uh, Ted Levine, uh, McKetty Williamson and uh, West uh, Studi. West Studi. Yep. Uh, this is a great su- group of supporting actors. Mm-hmm. West Studi coming off of uh, Last of Mohicans a few years ago. Worked oh, with Michael that's Mann. Right. Right. He was Magua, and then uh, McKelty Williamson, uh, right on the heels of uh, Forrest Gump. That's who that is. Yeah, that's Bubba. <laughs> that's Bubba. Yeah. He's great in this. He's fantastic in this. I yeah. mean, I, I mean, that's one of the fascinating things is that you have these supporting characters come in at moments. You're like, oh my god, that guy's. Amazing. What's really going to blow your mind is looking at Ted Levine. This is only three years, four years after Sansa Lance. Yeah. He still looks young and skin and th- uh, skinny and and uh, in shape in right. Sansa Lance. This is four, only four years later, and he looks like a cop in his late forties. Yep, with the gut and everything. It's yep. fantastic work. And yep. the, I don't know who the young kid is. That I don't think the actor ever did anything after this movie. But he's the young guy on the crew. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Um, and then there's some some talk about whether or not uh, Vince is going to take this gig mm-hmm. and it sounds like he takes the big things mm-hmm. and his response is what you think these are a bunch of gangbangers working a 7-eleven <laughs> and we go through sort of what they did and how they did it that they knew what they were after they knew how much time they have mm-hmm. they coordinated multiple vehicles they blew up all every everything that uh would have evidence in it they wiped out the uh the guards when there would mm-hmm. be i mean he walks through everything and it of course is exactly everything that they did and it's brilliant because it makes us appreciate the protagonist. Yeah. He's making us appreciate the antagonist and his crew. It's it's an interesting choice by man. Yeah. Well, it is definitely we see right from the beginning that he admires these guys. Yes. That he is like these are guys are really really good. Yes. You recognize the mo? Mo is that they're good. Once it escalated into a murder one B for all of them after they killed the first two guards, they didn't hesitate. Pop guard number three because. What difference does it make? Why leave a living witness? Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. The shape charge. The shape charge indicates that they are technically proficient. Proficient enough to go in on the prowl, so let's start looking for recent highline burglaries that have mystified us. Uh, we see this homeless guy who's giving this information because he overheard some of it, yeah. and he overheard the name Slick. And that that's like, okay, look up the alias Slick. You're going to get the phone book, but look it up. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that homeless guy was a homeless guy that lived right in that neighborhood. In fact, he was so well known to the neighborhood that the local shopkeepers would sometimes leave an extension cord out from like through a crack in their door so he could watch TV huh. at night. 
He was just a local character that wow. they had come in and do this scene. Um, and uh, Vince gives some instructions to his men, and they're off on the job. Mm-hmm. Um, we're having a meal. It's our crew sitting at a table in some kind of diner. De Niro comes in and sits down. He sits right next to Wayne Grow. Watch how that happens, though, Steve, right? As soon as he sits down, everybody takes a different position. Yeah, they all move. Yep. They all, it's all circling him, but also almost standing guard at what's about to happen. Yeah. And Wayne Grow starts to make an excuse. I had to do it, man. And De Niro just slams his head down on that table. <laughs> and there's a great look from this other... Because you're at a restaurant. Yep. And a dude slams another dude on the table, and there's a guy a couple of booths away, mm-hmm. and he sort of looks over, and maybe he's about to stand up, and maybe he's about to get involved, and Tom Sizemore gives him a look. Yeah, man. And that dude stops. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. Michael Mann describes that look as just completely dead-eyed. And that, and he says, these guys went through a lot of training in terms of weaponry and, and tactics, and he says that's where Sizemore Sizemore couldn't have done that look before doing that training. Oh, wow. That's what he says. I I don't know if that's... Yeah. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Sizemore's an interesting cat all around. But then after... He is. Yeah. He definitely is. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Then after this happens, there's sort of a sense that we're still going to split up the money and we're all that... That that was it. That was the punishment. Yeah. De Niro wants to be done with this guy. And you find out this is a guy they picked up Right. Uh, to do the job because one of their other guys, so the regular guys, dropped out. And so they needed to pick up somebody fast. Yep. This guy was recommended by whatever. They picked him up. Now uh, what De Niro says, I want to be done with this piece of shit or whatever he says. Like, I want to be done with this guy. I want to get as far away from this guy as possible. So you think there's going to pay him off and it's going right. to be done with. We're going to head out to the cars. Yeah, head out to the cars. Just as we're getting to the car, De Niro punches him, mm-hmm. takes out his foot really fast. Wayne grows down. De Niro pulls his gun. We're like, oh, shit, they're going to kill him right yeah, here yeah, in the yeah. parking lot. Then cop, cop car, lights come on, they hide, they, they put weapons away, cop car's just chasing down a motorist or something, mm-hmm. cop car's gone, Wayne Grow's gone. This is the part where I think there's a suspension of disbelief. There's no way De Niro doesn't hear Wayne Grow scrambling, scrambling around. around on the ground on asphalt. Got, he's not Batman. Away. No, he's not Batman. And he's hurt. He's injured. Yeah. So he's going he's gonna to make more noise scrambling around. <laughs> well, and that they just let him go. Yeah. I mean, we've seen that these are some vengeful guys, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, but they're just like, okay, and that's done. Right. We go to Neil's home. And by the way, his name, I should have said earlier, De Niro's name is Neil McCauley. Neil McCauley. They named him after this actual criminal that Chuck Adamson had chased back in Chicago 25 years earlier. Um, uh, we're back at his home, and there is this, this is this thing we see in this movie that I don't think I'd ever seen in this way. This blue light. It is blue Blue, blue. And we see him come in, put his gun down, just almost in the same way that uh, Vince picked up his gun in the very beginning of the film. Um, and he goes out the window, and there's this silhouette of him in this beautiful location looking out in the ocean. Well, and this is very reminiscent of Michael Mann's stuff. This is how you know him. It's Michael Mann. He does this in Miami Vice. He does this in Crime Story. He does this in his films. His more mo- Thief, he did this in Thief in 81. I've never seen Thief. What? Yeah. Steve O. Thief is so good. It's maybe the last time I, a, a, a James Conn-led film was incredible. Um, Misery. Oh, that's more Kathy Bates' film, though, isn't it? Uh, well, 
Do Andrew. I see your point. I love misery. Yeah, I would love to do that on, on the. Yeah, we sh- we should definitely do that. I'll, I'll wrap my ankles up. Um, <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> that scene drove me nuts. But uh, this this is very reminiscent of his vibe. It's got an eighties vibe to it. This like Miami Vice, the the water and the cleanliness of the apartment, the yeah. scarcity in the apartment. Yeah, it's totally great barren. The way yeah. it's done, and it almost feels like a color noir. Almost. Totally agree. I mm-hmm. think that's a great way to describe it, like a colored noir. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I like that a lot. Uh, let's go meet Ashley Judd. Yeah, man. The beautiful Ashley. She looks stunning in this film. I love the way her hair is done. And apparently she, because uh, um, this is supposed to be a former call girl who's now oh, wow. the wife of this situation. So she, apparently Ashley Judd interviewed some former call girls that had become mm. wives of mobsters or criminals and stuff like that to get an idea of how they would handle themselves in situations. Her hair is kind of influenced by that as well. And Val Comer goes to meet her? And immediately she's asking about the money. Where is it? Uh, square the bookies, baby. It's more in a couple of days, so don't square it. Come on, we really are late. Honey, it ain't worth the risks you take for eight thousand. Like in risk versus reward, baby. And, th- and this is what I mean too about like this iceberg thing. Mm-hmm. We walk into this relationship. We're there twenty seconds. And we already get there's a history here. Yep. This is complicated. And we see that mix of like love and anger and mm-hmm. pain and disappointment and Val Kilmer's gambling problem. And all of it comes really, really clear, really, really fast. There is no point talking to you because all you are is a child growing older. What's this supposed to mean? It means we're not making forward progress like real grown up adults live in our lives because I'm married to a gambling junkie who won't listen. Charlene, get in the fucking car. You're right, Stephen. This is, once again, what you brought up earlier. This is why you cast the way you cast. When you don't have a lot of scenes of backstory and exposition, it's about casting characters that can bring those levels of a relationship to a short amount of time on, on screen in exchanges, and you see this here between them. She says, it's not worth the risk, baby. What you do, right. it's not worth the risk. And you know, she's, he's withholding money from her. And she knows it, and she she's trying to get him to finally admit the situation until she pushes too far, and he flips out. He does. That's, that's a terror. That's a, a like a horrible. It's an abusive relationship. Yeah, but we see we see everything in this scene. Yeah. We see the love. Yep. We see the disappointment, and we see the abuse. Yep. And then we see he's out, and the scene is short. Yeah, it is. You short. know. So Vincent gets in the car. He makes a couple of phone calls, checks on things, heads into his house, pours himself a drink. And down comes his wife. Yeah. Looking worried. And the first question is, did dad show up? Yeah. Nope. Uh, didn't call, didn't show. Now, does this guy have any idea what's going on with this kid? And again, the point thing you pointed out before, you see Vincent really cares about him. Yeah, he does. I imagine his line of work, he's used to dealing with teenagers coming from broken homes or yep. damaged homes. And he's yep. seen what that can do to a young, especially a young girl. Yeah, and he asks if she's okay, and yeah. no, she's not okay. And the truth is that his wife's not okay either. Mm-hmm. She's a little pissed. She made dinner four hours ago. Yeah. I got three dead bodies on a sidewalk off Venice Boulevard, Justine. I'm sorry if the goddamn chicken got overcooked. Sorry if the goddamn... Chicken got overcooked. <laughs> I love the way he says that and just throws the leg down on the ground, <laughs> on the plate, rather. <laughs> yep. And she goes back upstairs and he turns on the TV. Mm-hmm. And this is this thing where... This TV becomes important, by the way. It does <laughs> become important. This is this thing where 
you 100% get where he's coming from, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you are also feel for her. Yes. You know? Yeah. Now, while he's sitting down to have his crappy, I'm in a fight with my wife night of television and booze, Robert De Niro's in a bookstore. Yeah. Looking at books. And just really fast, someone walks by. Later on, he's uh, at a restaurant. He's, you know, at the counter. And this woman asks. What'd you get? And at first, he's like, who's this person talking to yeah. me? And and he's a little defensive. Yeah. What business is yours, lady? Yeah. Why do you want to know so much about my business? Yeah. And then she finally says, well, because I work at the bookstore and I saw you there. Mm-hmm. And he flips around pretty quick. Yeah, because she shuts down. She goes, yeah. I'm sorry. I bo- leave me alone. I'm yeah. sorry to bother you. Blah, blah, blah. And then, yeah, he flips pretty quick. Yeah. And then we get into, you know, what kind of work he does. And mm-hmm. he's in metals. He's a salesman. And he introduces himself to Edie, Amy yeah. Bremerman, mm-hmm. um, who's really good in this movie. God, she's so good in this movie. Yeah. And, you know, I remember her in NYPD Blue. She was so good in yeah. NYPD Blue for so many years on that show. And uh, her look is great. The hair is big. The style is mm-hmm. like the over uh, the larger sweaters. Everything about her conveys someone who's worked in a bookstore for quite some time because she loves books. She has a kind of vibe to her, right? And there's a sweetness and a vulnerability mm-hmm. to that her. southern accent. Yep. Yeah, she's definitely a com- completely different from anybody else's in this movie. Yeah, um, and had to talk her into this movie. She didn't want to do it. Well, that's what's so fascinating. Yeah, she didn't want to do it because she's like the role isn't big enough. The role is like it's, it's, he's she's just an, an attachment to Neil. She wanted something more, and so as they worked on the script more and more, that's when she started to get convinced to be in the film. Well, it's funny that's not what I heard. Now, oh. Of course, I, so the the story that. Uh, uh, that she said in one of the things that I yeah. was watching is that she got the script and read the script and didn't like it. Mm. Said, I don't like the script. And Michael Mann says, I want to meet with her. And she's like, why am I meeting? I don't like the script. And he insisted. So she goes to meet and he says, why don't you want to do the movie? And she says, cause I don't like the script. It's really bloody. It's really violent. You have characters without a moral core. I'm not interested in anything like that. And Michael Mann said, that's why you should do the movie. Because you are the one character who isn't a part of all this, who right. does have a strong moral core, and that's why you have to be in this film. Right. That is some great director manipulation right there. That's good. Um, for an actor. Oh, I'll stand out. I'll be unique in this film? Right. Oh, yes, I'll do it. Yeah, well, and you play to the what, what the actor. I literally was in class today. We were doing in-class rehearsals. Yeah. And I had these directors, uh, one of which, and I've seen this a lot of young directors, who they want to say... Every single thing the scene is about, you say this because of this, and this line is about this, and then you're going to cross here, and then you're going to do this, and then you're going to do that, and this is where you're going to yell at him. And I always like, stop. Yeah. Let your actor contribute stuff. that You might want to get them to that place anyway, but if you tell them everything up front, you deny everything that they are. Yeah. And that what you want to do is figure out what the actor wants and then help that. So an actor comes in and says, this, is, this script is morally wrong, and I don't like it. Then you use it. <laughs> because then the actor is going to feel, oh, it is important for me to be in the script. I am listened to. My I, this, ma- I matter. Yeah, it's great directing. Um, it's also manipulative. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Um, and then we continue. We hear that she's a, in a graphic designer. We hear about where she went to college, and he is asking all the questions, mm-hmm. and he is not given any answers. You know, other than that, he's a salesman. And now we start talking about where she lives, and she's got this place up in the hills, beautiful view, crappy place. Cut to where at that house with yeah. a beautiful view. And he is still asking questions about her family. She's got Scotch-Irish immigrants who came to Appalachia, and he does say he's from the Bay Area, which is where I'm from. Mm. And other than that, 
doesn't kind of volunteer very much. And he looks at her, and there's something he's like looking into her soul, I think, in this scene. You have a tight family, I can tell. Yeah. Right? You're right. And he's moving a little closer. Then they're looking out of this view, and the view is spectacular. It is. It is one of those spectacular L.A. lights shimmering off into the distance kind of views. Half CGI'd. Which is, yeah, half CGI. <laughs> Steve, it's half CGI. <laughs> I was very mad when I found this out later in my life because it's such a beautiful shot. It is. And you've been on that. You've been in those places in yeah. Los Angeles where you just look out and the lights just Sometimes twinkle on forever. window here at the that's living right, room. Yeah. We can see some beautiful lights that also is That's also half CGI. <laughs> that's a green screen. By the way, someday I have to get you out here on the 4th of July because it is the world's greatest fireworks oh, display. Oh, I bet. There is like 300 illegal fireworks displays <laughs> Going on simultaneously, they start about seven at night yeah. and they go until three in the morning. Wow. It is amazing. Wow. And just till the end, it's just filled with smoke everywhere. It might be a bad idea. It, no, it, we're going to have a party this year. I think. <laughs> okay. We've never done it before. Um, so, but we digress. In Fiji, they have these iridescent algae that come out once a year in the water. That's what it looks like out there. You've been there? Oh, I'm going there someday. And then she asks if he travels a lot. And he says, yeah. And she says, Traveling makes you lonely. And there's this long pause, an awkward pause. And I love his line back. I'm alone. I am not lonely. Do you think that's true? Yeah. I think it's very true because he's conditioned his life to be this way. He's, and some people are actually quite happy being uh, alone. And they don't feel lonely. And they can, obviously, as Neil showed you in this whole scene, they can attract a, a person to be around anytime they want. Uh, but some people just thoroughly enjoy being alone uh, and they don't feel lonely. They like the pleasure of their own company. I 50% agree with you. <laughs> okay. Because I think that is what he thinks. Okay. And I think that is how he is. I don't think he is. I think he has turned down the volume on lonely. Mm-hmm. But I think what happens to him emotionally mm -hmm. from this scene forward in the film, his need for her gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's like, no, you have been lonely. You know, the degree oh. to which you push down that emotion for so long is part of why you're so overwhelmed by what's happening now. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. um, of course, I, I, I don't know. Right. But that, that's sort of how I feel watching it. Yeah. And then he puts his arm around her. And he touches her hair, and then he leans in for the kiss, and then this romance begins. And later, she's in bed. She's asleep. He gets up. The camera slowly pushes in on her as he watches her, and he leaves a glass of water. And I love the way the glass of water is wrapped in a napkin yeah. by the side of the bed. He's a considered SOB. He is. Yeah. Well, he's Neil has got it all figured out. He he mm -hmm. does everything well. He is a guy who thinks through everything he's going to do. Yeah. Including how he leaves that glass of water. Yep. And he leaves. And I don't think he's left glass of water for every woman he's slept with. I don't think so either. Yeah. Do you think he knows he's coming back? Or yeah. do you think he's thinking, uh, okay, that's it. I have to not come back. Uh, it's a good question, Steve. That's a very good question, actually. I think... The way he leaves the water, he certainly has a special connection to her. It's sen you sense that. And the way that Michael Mann gets a close-up on that shot lets you know that it's supposed to be something special. But as we find out in the film, it's when he does reach out to her again, it's been some time. 
So yeah. I don't know necessarily if he knows he's coming back to her. I think he like Neil, Neil's a cautious guy. He's gonna process this situation before he uh reaches back out again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Vincent drives fast. Everywhere he goes, that car moves aggressively. He's a former coke addict, man. Whereas I get the sense that Neil drives the speed limit. Mm-hmm. Not too fast, not too slow, stops at every light. He doesn't want to attract attention. Of course. Yeah. And where he's driving fast right now is one of the most fascinating locations in this whole film, which is this literally across the tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, this was a real place where there were dogfights and cockfights, and this was a whole... LA living off the grid before there really was a grid place and they roll into this area and makes an entrance on I think the character's name is Albert yeah and this is Ricky Harris who was his stand-up comic he was on Def Comedy Jam uh and this scene is (laughs) it's insane what Al Pacino does is amazing Albert Listen, man, what, what you doing coming in for, man? You crazy? This ain't Disneyland, man. You were man. supposed to get back to me last night. Where the fuck you been? I couldn't break free, Vincent, you know? Let's violate his ass right now. I do for you. You don't do for me. Is that it? Albert was not expecting him. No. Albert was peacefully having his meal. Mm-hmm. And then Pacino showed up with McKelty Williamson. Oh, man. And, and and I guess this is an old informant that Pacino feels hasn't been delivering, and he is just all over him. Empathy was yesterday. Today, you're wasting my motherfucking time. Vincent, man, Did you fall in love? Come on. Did you fall in love last night? You went off somewhere? Vincent. Just tell me that. I'll, I'll settle for it. You know what I mean? I'll buy that. B- Vincent. Give me all you got! Vincent. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! That was much better. I yes, should just yeah. I should just nod to you for the Pacino <laughs> moments. No, um, no. Apparently, Michael Mann thought what Pacino was doing, which is completely histrionic and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, like chewing the scenery, was so funny that he had to keep walking off the set because he was laughing so hard at what Pacino was doing. I'm sure not at Pacino, more appreciation. Oh, no, not at. No, yeah, definitely yeah, yeah. in appreciation. Well, because the thing is, is it seems like Pacino started making these choices and he kept looking, which is what you do. You mm-hmm. look to the director and go, is this what you want? Yeah. And Michael Mann kept not saying no and kept mm-hmm. nodding. And then Pacino kept pushing it further and further and further. And Michael Mann, what he said was that he really got the Neil McCauley character. And he didn't yeah. really get the Vincent Hanna character as much. Right. And it wasn't until Pacino came in and started to experiment and really started to strut and expand that character that he went, oh, I get it. Yeah. I get who that guy is, yeah. you know, which is, this is one of the weird things that people don't understand about being a screenwriter is you write a script, you know more about that than any human on the planet. Mm-hmm. And then actors come in and you go, Oh, I didn't know that. And it's, an, that's the best. It is so good when an actor comes in and fills out some stuff. Like you wrote a sentence because you had to get the scene from here to there. And that's why that sentence is there. And then the actor does it and you go, Oh shit. I didn't know that was, about the regret of their lost childhood. Right. And yet they somehow put that into that sentence and you go, of course that was about. Yeah. Yeah. And Vin and Pacino in this is crazy. Yeah. And I think part of this is where you see where I think he's doing is he's doing all this strange stuff to confuse him and distract him and to put him off balance. Um, and in this scene, uh, Drucker also is coming in and, mm-hmm. and clearly knows how to play with Pacino. And finally we hear that there's this guy, Richard, who is his brother and that's who is going to give him the information that he needs right. and they set up a meeting at some club after hours club called bj's you'll be there too albert <laughs> you'll be there too and he's he didn't want to be there no albert didn't want to be there <laughs> yeah hell no but i don't think you say no to lieutenant vincent hannah don't 
waste my motherfucking time. We heard when De Niro met with John Voight that there's this other job. And now we're going to find out about it. And we're going to meet with Kelso, who's the actor's name is Tom Noonan. Who I kept staring at going, is that Peter Boyle? But it is oh. kind of, he's great. This you know top, who that top, is? No, who is he? Uh, he's Manhunter. Oh, of course he is. Yeah. I haven't seen that in forever. Oh, really? It's another one awesome. I haven't seen a good forever. one. If you guys haven't seen Michael Mann's Manhunter, which is his original version of Red Dragon. Yeah, of Hannibal Lecter. Of Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. yeah. You Brian Cox plays Hannibal Lecter in That's that right. one. It's really great. And this character this guy plays the uh Buffalo Bill character. Or the uh I forget what the character's name is. Yeah. I don't, yeah. So and what we hear is that this other job is gonna be a bank job. Mm-hmm. And he this guy, apparently this is a guy who finds vulnerable robbery potential and he kind of lays it down that they're they've got a whole bunch of cash that comes into this place they're covering paychecks uh three or four guys can do it he's got all the systems figured out and that they're going to go in and knock out the surveillance they're going to knock out all the alarm system the night before so they can roll in and do this robbery yeah and the estimate i think is like 12 million dollars yep that's a lot of money yeah it is just as this conversation is happening John Voight is making a phone call to the guy who they originally stole the bonds from with this insurance deal. And that guy's name is Roger Van Zant. Van Zant. And it is William Fickner. Fickner, yeah. He's one of the great character actors who pops up Absolutely. all the time. He's in he's in Armageddon, right? Yes, he is. He's the captain on the uh, space shuttle. Talk about the wrong stuff. <laughs> That's his line. Uh, he's great. He's always great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his henchman is Henry Rollins. Yep. Who has one of the great looks of humans. <laughs> he looks like a tough henchman. Marginal actor at best, but certainly had the look. He has a great look. Yeah. And and he says, sure. He says, I'm sure I'll make the deal and I'll buy back the stuff. He hangs up the phone. You going to duel these guys? So words on the street, it's okay to steal my stuff. I'm going to kill the sons of bitches. So immediately we go like, okay, this is not, not yep. going to work out the way we want. Exactly. We're at the end of the meeting, um, and Kelso is kind of giving him all the plans and the details and this is sounding like a pretty good deal mm-hmm. he goes back to john void who says you're on with van zandt and de niro asks, he's in he goes yeah he's a businessman which we know is not exactly how right. this is gonna go um neil gets home what does he see on his floor chris chris passed out drunk and he makes a call and he calls charlene mm-hmm. ashley judd hello this is at my place. What's wrong? Husband and wife stuff. I'll let him sleep it off here. Kilmer looks good. Kilmer's just... Man, Steve, in this movie, Kilmer is just full-on, like... I don't know if I say this straight male to straight male, but he's sexy in this movie, man. He's a sexy man. Yeah, in this... Because he's just unkempt into it, but the hair looks good, and even waking up, he's got that kind of wake-up face, but it's like... This is like Kilmer in his prime, man. And you see him now with the cancer stuff with his throat, and it's really tough to watch, bro, because he was such a powerful energy in the 90s as an actor. Well, one of the weird things about getting old, and and, and I'm 50 now, it's weird to watch people that are your age or, or even people that are younger and go and see them and go, Oh, you're, you're old now. Yeah. Like you who used to be sexy and athletic and all it's like, Oh, <laughs> cause if you're, cause if Kilmer looks old, then I must be old. Right. You look at Burt Reynolds, Burt Reynolds transition from that eighties, from that seventies guy to the eighties guy to by the time of the early nineties, you're like, Oh, what happened? Oh. You were the sexiest guy in the in the world. Well, but Burt Reynolds is not my generation. What's, what's right. weird to me is seeing, oh, see the, is seeing the people that, like, even people on, like, seeing yeah. someone who, like, was 
a young hot person when I was 30. Yeah. Now be 40. Yeah, <laughs> you know, point. it's weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, as you say, you know, he wakes up and we have this great conversation where he's kind of saying, what's the problem here? You know he's going to leave me. Why? Not no steaks in the freezer. Everything we've been doing? Vegas is Super Bowl cleaning up. And there's a great, by the way, back and forth in the scene where we're talking about crisp and then we're talking about you need more furniture. Yeah. <laughs> I like their relationship their a lot. Their relationship is very much big brother, little brother. Yeah. And and uh, John Voight and De Niro's relationship is very much like friends. Yeah. There's a difference here, right? Because like, you sense that uh, John Voight cares for De Niro in a way that's more than just what their professional relationship is. But with De Niro and Kilmer, there's more of an affection here between these guys. I think genuine affection. He might have even found him as a young guy in prison and trained, trained, trained him. him. Yeah, yeah. Because and because what's interesting, like uh, John Voight to me seems like uncle. You know what I mean? Like an older guy, but not in De Niro's league. That's perfect. You know. Yep. And, and then this thing, he kind of asks. He's kind of probing with Chris. Like, you got something else on the side? Nothing regular. Which means that he has. And then the next question, which is the harsh question. So you got something else on the side? No. You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. And then De Niro gives a speech. And I think this speech is at the heart of the movie. Remember Jimmy McElwain on the yard used to say, you want to be making moves on the street, have no attachments, allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner. Remember that? That's the first time we hear that word heat. Mm-hmm. Normally, I don't like titles of the movies popping up in <laughs> movies, but this is one word where it's perfect, which is this idea of, because this is De Niro's philosophy, what he later calls the discipline, yep. is that you can't have anything in your life that you can't cut out on in 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. That's what he believes. And Chris, by being in love with Charlene, you know, which because what he says is, for me, the sun rises and sets with her, man. He can't quit her. No. He can cheat on her. Yep. He can withhold money from her. Yep. But he loves her. And and, and that is a violation of the discipline. If, yes, it is. And yet, De Niro's response is, okay. Yeah. You know, because if that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And we kind of go, okay, we're going to, today we're going to go make a deposit on the bank. We're going to, you know, the platinum thing, which is this other uh Robbery they have is still going to happen. And then this is a great shot with that beautiful ocean in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we meet a new character, Dennis Haysbert. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, his name is uh, Donald Breedman. Mm-hmm. And he's with this girl. And, and that's what's interesting. Again, we jump right into the middle of something. We don't know what's going on. He's with this girl. He kisses her goodbye. He walks out of the car into this restaurant, uh, goes up to the guy who's like the kitchen manager or whatever. Uh, who is Bud Court? Bud Court from Harold and Maude and yeah. Mash and a whole bunch of other things in the seventies, <laughs> and he is a major, major asshole. Oh yeah, he's a guy who takes advantage of a situation. Yeah, he's a small. Mm, how can I say this? He's a small uh, guy thinking he's a big guy because uh, he has the advantage in these situations with these ex cons. He's a flat out jerk. Yeah, because what he's doing is he's saying, Daddy, you'll mop out the toilets, hit the dishwasher, bust tables, and empty the garbage, too. Give me a hard time. I'll report you loaded, drunk, or stealing, and I will violate you back so fast you have a spin. 
25% of your take home kicks back to me. Rules of the game. What an asshole. Yep. But we do have a little more time. I do want to say, Steve, there's a great the, the scene in the car between Dennis Haysbert and the woman, the actress mm. playing it. Like, there's a real tenderness there. Absolutely. You can sense that she loves him. He's gotten into some trouble with the law. He served his time in prison. He's coming out and she's encouraging him. He's showing vulnerability in that scene of, like, you know, you know, why, why are you with me, baby? Why, like, those kinds of things, you know. You see that in this scene, the beginnings of that. And she's very encouraging and kisses him and. You know, trying to give him the confidence to put his life back together. And again, this is what I'm, this is this what I'm calling the mm-hmm. iceberg thing, which yeah. is that you sense a whole, you understand a whole bunch of history here. Mm-hmm. You know he's messed up. You know she stood by him. Yeah. You know he loves her. He's made mistakes. She's supporting him. He's going to try again. He's determined to do it right this time. Right. All that stuff you get in like a minute long scene. Right. And then Bud Cord comes in and actually Just punches him in the mouth uh, figuratively. Yeah. Yeah. De Niro's on a phone call with Van Zant. And there's a little thing, which is, again, it's fun watching how things operate, which is like gives him a different number to call in. Mm-hmm. We get we have the different uh, phone call and we're going to make a deal. It's all going to go well. We're going to meet at this uh, old drive-in theater. Mm-hmm. And, of course, always in this movie, multiple things are happening at once because as he finishes off that call, we see that he's actually watching someone and he's watching a motel yep. and Ashley Judd and a man leaving her, which is Hank Azaria. Hank Azaria. And then we're in the hotel, the hotel room. We see a housekeeping cart kind of go by. Mm-hmm. We have the little knock on the door that it's housekeeping. Great that that cart went by the window. It's a great little detail. She opens the door, and man, De Niro comes in hard and scary. Yeah. Who was that guy? Nobody. Who, the, who, who was that guy? He's you nobody. Know who he is. Who is he? He's nobody. Neil. Listen, he's a, he's a legit liquor wholesaler from Las Vegas, Alan Marciano. De Niro plays this so well yeah. because at first he's scary and at first she really thinks she's going to get the shit kicked out of her yeah. and that he's like, well, Chris is going to straighten this out with you. And then she's, I love Ashley Joe's performance on, I'm sick of it. Sick of it. Sick of it. It's too late. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. Shut up. Yeah. yeah. It was just great. Mm-hmm. And then De Niro lays out the deal. Because she's pushing back. Yeah. And she's used, because De Niro's almost semi-abusive in this situation, in this moment. Oh, yeah. He's barreling through that door. He's cornering her against a wall. Uh, this is a woman who's suffering already from abusive relationship with Chris. Right. And here's De Niro using the same kind of tactics. Then again, these are not good men. These are criminals. You right. know, No matter what their code or nobility is, these are not good men. And so he corners her in that way, but she fights back. She doesn't want to do this bullshit anymore. She wants a way out and fights back even against Neil. Well, and and you say they're not good men, which I 100% agree they are. But they, but, but you also say there's this code, and he asked Chris, mm-hmm. and knows that Chris has been, um, he's been losing the money. He knows Chris has been cheating. Yeah. He asks about her. He says no, and she says, "I'm sick of it." And he goes, he looks at the situation, and he goes, "There's fault. There's this. There's fault on both sides. Yes, and that Chris is is to blame for a lot of this, and that and he knows that she probably wouldn't be cheating if Chris were not doing the things that he's doing. Exactly. And so the next thing he says is. Here's the deal. You will give Chris one last shot. After that, he fucks up, then I will finance setting you up myself on my own, any way you want. Dominic will go with you, and my word counts. But right now, you will give him the chance. He lays down the law, but it actually is a, I care about my friend Chris, Mm -hmm. and I actually care about you, and I want to help this thing to work out. 
the patriarch of the family. He is the patriarch. Exactly so. Yeah. He is the patriarch of the family. Again, there's that cool score, and we're in that POV shot behind Vince as he pulls his car into a space. He gets out. Of, and this is, again, this is an L.A. location. It's Koreatown, strip mall, mm-hmm. lots of neon. Goes up to some guy who's uh, working the door and plays a little game with him, then goes down through some elevators into this loud, crowded hip-hop club and comes up to Richard, the guy we heard about, who's the brother of Albert, the informant. Albert's there, too. And that's uh, Tone Lock. Tone Loke. Tone Loke. Yeah. Um, you know who Tone Loke is, It's right? What song is it? Karen Funky was, Cold Medina. Funky Cold Medina. I yeah. knew it was one of those. <laughs> yeah, Steve. Look. I know. There's a there's a lot of things I know a lot about. There is, there is. I do know the song Funky Sure, Cold sure, sure. Um who is it? There's someone who does that at karaoke. Uh Brian Leonard. Brian Leonard does yep. that at karaoke. And and well. Yes, he does. Yeah. So, but uh and he and Vincent asks what what's he got for him? And the first thing that Richard wants to talk about is essentially another criminal operation that's in competition with him and would like Vince to take it that out. You're looking to rid yourself of your competition. Hmm? I'm a good citizen. I'm Donald Duck. So you got something to tell me or what? How, how do I know you're going to do what I need you to do? I ain't your cuz, you rat motherfucker. And you know because I say so. After I hear, what the fuck you got to tell me? Look here, man. You understand what I'm saying? I get killed for telling you this shit. Kill walking your doggy. You get killed walking your doggy. It's so bizarre. <laughs> it's so bizarre. Um, and uh, and then he kind of tells this story. There's a guy he ran into who he used to be in prison with, and that guy always goes for the big action. And now he goes on and on about nothing's been going on. Right then, I know this cat has something going down. That is some logic that is weak. <laughs> <laughs> the looks from Vincent are oh, hilarious. Yeah, so, he milks this so well. Pretty fucking great. You saw a guy on the street who's an ex-con. That's right. Well, I am over-fucking-well. What do you want for that, a junior G-man badge? And and Richard still thinks he's going to help him out with this, this issue yeah. that he has. And they're just walking out. And just as they're leaving, uh, Richard says, Hey, Vince, I'm telling you, man, this slick is no motherfucking joke, man. Slick. Vince stops. He comes back. You said slick. What does that mean? Slick is what this guy calls people. That is some luck right there. Yep. This crazy, weak-ass story, in fact, is the right guy, and he happens to say, know this word, mm-hmm. Slick, and he even knows his name, Chirino. Yeah. Michael Chirino. Michael Chirino. That's the first big clue. That's the break in the case. And they pull his record. Now we're back with the cops, and he gives out the instructions. Tell SIS I want full surveillance. That's 24 hours. Round the clock, day and night, we never close open seven days a week. But the car, the house, the works, when he moves or sits, like in a restaurant, I want pictures of who he moves and sits with. Then you guys run, makes on them, they got jackets. I want to see who they move and they sit with. I want it up and running by tomorrow night. And the guys jump and get on the phone. Mm -hmm. The power Vincent has over his men is just 100%. Full respect. It is. Mm -hmm. And and I don't think he's an easy guy to work for. Oh, no. He is... Difficult. Yes. Let's go to the drive-in theater. I'm sad these places don't exist anymore. Drive-in <laughs> theaters were fun. Yeah. Um, there are occasional ones way out 
right? Yeah, there's one I think way out east I haven't been to. Um, I remember going as a kid. They were a very fun thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, We see a white pickup truck pulls in. We have ominous music. A great top-down shot of this theater. Uh, Pulls next to a car. The window rolls down, and we have uh, Neil in the front seat giving very, very clear instructions. Put your hands where I can see him. What? Put your hands where I can see him. All right. I tell you what to do. I tell you how to do it. And we see just the cold professionalism. Mm -hmm. And as he is giving instructions to the guy in the front of the car, we see another guy coming out of the back. The guy in the truck tosses a package to De Niro. And the guy who'd come around the back has got a like an Uzi. And he is about to move into fire. And just as he is almost ready, we see Val Kilmer with a scope who spots him. Behind you. On the right. And immediately, De Niro puts that car in first and slams and crushes him up against the truck. It is brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, and man, things happen fast from this point on. Val rolls out and opens fire in a crouch position. And it is super cool. Yeah. Val is Kilmer is so cool in this movie. It really is. Just as that's happening, the shooter, who's now limping because he got crushed against this white truck, barely is getting his weapon up to fire at De Niro, who's driving straight for him, firing through his own windshield. Uh, Val Kilmer, uh, who had been firing at the truck, turns to fire at the guy that De Niro is shooting at, hits him just as De Niro hits him, and then hits him with the car. Right. So we take out that guy pretty clearly. <laughs> you know, now, but the truck, the, the white truck is getting away, and then who comes out? Tom Sizemore with a shotgun. blows him away and that truck rolls to a stop um but they did get the package Mm -hmm. the package filled with paper yep (laughs) it's like the uh the decoy that um it's not filled with the whites oh right uh, yeah lebowski in lebowski by the way i was thinking this movie Mm -hmm. there are three movies now i think we've done that get los angeles yeah heat the big lebowski yeah and pulp fiction have we done L.A. Confidential yet? We did do L.A. Confidential. That's, a, that's, but that's another more one. more of a... It's a noir... Set of time. Yeah, set time. of time. Yeah, but yeah. definitely that one, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so interesting living here now, seeing movies that get it right. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Especially Pulp Fiction. My God. Yeah. It's there. We're on the phone. Let's oh, call Roger Van Zandt. I love this scene, man. He answers, says, who is this? And De Niro is just great. Yeah, man. You know what this is. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I sent a guy to deliver the package. He didn't call. Is everything right? Tell you what. Forget the money. What? Forget the money. It's a lot of money. What are you doing? What do you mean, forget the money? What am I doing? I'm talking to an empty telephone. I don't understand. Because there was a dead man on the other end of this fucking line. That's just great. I love it. And and a Michael Mann uses a rack focus. Mm. What you'd seen in Jaws with Shy- Schne- uh, Roy Scheider when the shark shows up. You mean the Zoll- it's good, Zolly? Yeah, the, yeah, Zoll- yeah, yeah. Sorry, Zolly. Yeah, you see that he's almost in a fisheye mm. lens, uh, almost in the way he's being shot. Mm. Everything is just De Niro, and it's a fantastic yeah. moment. You see that that is you literally get walked into De Niro's laser focus as this character. It is it, it evokes that completely. And then, and then, of course, you go cut to Van Zant, mm-hmm. and he is shook. He's shook. That's really a, shook. As the kids say nowadays, he yeah, is shook. He is shook. Now we're gonna have a nice dinner, and we got we got Tom, uh, we got Sizemore and his family. We got Ashley Judd and her kid and Chris. We got 
uh, De Niro watching. There's some kind of gifts being exchanged, and people are hugging, and it's loving. And De Niro is looking at them, and there's this sense of being separate. Yeah. The sense of, oh, I don't have that. Mm-hmm. And this is where that idea of loneliness, were you alone or were you lonely? You, and, you, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. And, and now I think he's lonely. You don't know you're alone till you meet or lonely till you meet someone yeah. who you have a connection with, and then she or he or she opens up the loneliness mm-hmm. in your life that you didn't you had just come to terms with. Uh, and he walks out, and we're back at uh, Edie's house, and yeah. the phone rings, and he says, "It's me." He hasn't contacted her since that night. Yeah. I always think it's me is a weird thing to say to someone that you don't know that well. <laughs> It's like there's a lot of like you could call me and say it's me. Yeah, right. I am right. familiar with your voice. <laughs> sure, <laughs> but someone who I met just once, maybe not. But she does know who it is, yeah, yeah. and she was wondering, you know, was he going to call? She doesn't strike me as the kind of person who dates a lot of people. Yeah, I don't think so either. And she watched him. In essence, she kind of stalked him in she the bookstore did. before she talked to him at that di- uh, the restaurant when they first met. Um, and they talk about you know whether or not it was going to be just one night, mm. and they both kind of say that it wasn't going to be just one night one night and he says i'll see you in a little bit and she hangs up smiling all the families are exiting the restaurant and now we see that that restaurant has been under surveillance and all of our cops are watching and they go it's a goddamn convention they ask which one's slick and they point out tom sizemore yep and now they've identified chris and we know that the cops know a little bit of this precious metal score, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And then the big question is, who's the loner? First time we're seeing him. We're not on him yet. Get on it. They have nothing on him. Yeah, nothing on Neil. Yeah. They got everybody else, but they don't have Neil, which means he's done a really great job of covering his tracks. Well, I mean, he's got no wife. He's mm-hmm. got no kid. He's yep. not driving around gambling too much. He's, he's opening a, a, a car doors with his elbow. No, he, all there. he is he is a professional. But that, of course, is the question. It's like, well, let's get on this guy. Yeah. And and Pacino stands up and he says, When these guys walk out the door of whatever score they're going to take next, they're going to have the surprise of a lifetime. His cockiness is there, too. Back to Wayne Grow. Oh, Wayne Grow. There's a woman. Mm-hmm. She is of a professional... Nature. Yep. She, <laughs> Professional nature, Steve. That's very well said. Uh, she's kind of making her exit, saying she showed him a good time. And Wayne Grow sits up. And we see he's got a lot of tattoos, which are like prison, white supremacist, yep. scary tattoos. Um, and he's questioning her. You're lying to me. I can always tell when people lie to me. And then she gives a really good speech about how great he was Um, i ain't lying you a hot dog a regular rodeo rider and this was the monster fuck of my young life uh and then he said he's so scary in this yeah he is you don't know what this is and there's this scary look and she you could see she's getting scared the grim reaper's visiting with you and he starts to move she starts to get away, and he grabs her hair, and we're out of the scene. <coughs> His character, you knew you didn't like him at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You knew he's kind of crazy when he killed the cop. Right. You knew he's trying to weasel his way out of it when we had the diner. You see this scene, mm-hmm. and you go, he's a psychopath. Right. He is a serial killing, scary guy. Exactly. And that's the, the part that they left out of this movie, the back 
story with Wayne Grove is that he's a serial killer. Yeah. And that and there's allusions to it throughout the movie when Vincent is looking at these starting with this death as we're going to come up on it that this matches the pat like you'll hear the, the medical examiner say this matches the pattern. Right. So it's a, it's alluding to a serial killer. It's very clear. Yeah, to yeah. me, it was very clear. Yeah, we don't get it. And again, again, this is the iceberg. Mm-hmm. We don't get into it, right? But we know there's a whole bunch of stuff there. Yeah. Like you could take almost all of these characters and do a movie. This could have been a four-hour movie. I'd have been happy. <laughs> I, <shit bet. laughs> I wouldn't have been happy for this podcast. <laughs> True. Like, fair. It's a lot of prep time. Fair. Um, and later on, we're with Wayne Grow at a bar, and he's looking for some more work, and he gets some phone numbers, and we know, oh, he's still out there. They managed to keep his thread alive really, really beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a great meal with our criminals, and now we're going to be out with our cops. Yep. And they're dancing and laughing and drinking, and Ted Levine is telling some weird story, which apparently was improv. It was improv, set. yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, Vincent is dancing with Justine, and things are going pretty well. And then beep, 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 yep. beeper goes off. And there's just a great reaction to that because she knows and he knows, and this is what the relationship is. Mm -hmm. Even in the moment where they were really happy at that brief moment. And he looks at the beeper and he pulls out the phone. Yep. We roll up on another crime scene and this is at the motel and we see a little thing on the motel that has hourly rates so it's always a sign of a nice establishment, <laughs> four star. And Vince walks in past the police line, and he gets handed a photo. And this is where we hear what you what you said, which is he beat her head in the same as the others. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's that mom. Oh yeah, who wants to see her kid? This is such a, this is such an unusual moment or scene in the movie. They do a dance, yeah, literally, yeah, a dance of death uh, between them and. Mm. Um, you know, because in a way, to me, I've always felt this scene mirrors a lot of black mothers uh, with children in uh, desperate situations and what they must experience as a reality of life, you know? And yep. Vincent, as the cop or the policeman or the lieutenant, whatever detective who has seen this as well, these two represent certain things that has that have always danced with each other for decades in this country, you know? It is so brutal. Mm-hmm. And it seems like in that moment, he is there for her. Yeah. You know what I mean? In a way, he's not always there for maybe people in his life. Right. But in that moment, as a cop, he is there for her. Mm-hmm. We're back at that same bar. Bar is empty, except for Justine, yeah. who has been waiting the whole time. And her first line is, I guess the earth shattered. It's really sad. Why is she still at the bar? What is she trying to prove? That's exactly that's exactly she is trying to prove something. Yeah, well, he says to her, right? This is the life, baby. You knew you knew what you were signing up for. I told you what my life was. I told you when we hooked up, baby, that you were gonna have to share me with all the bad people and all the ugly events on this planet. I've seen I've seen this in many relationships mm-hmm. where somebody says, I told you this was the deal at the beginning. Yeah. It's not a good, you can't, that, it just doesn't work that way, mm-hmm. you know, because even, because people at the beginning of relationships will accept the thing that actually isn't acceptable, right? you know, and the fact that you say, like, you get someone to sign a contract that you can be, you know, 
not nice to them yeah. or, or ignore them and that they've signed it. So now they just have to deal with that for the rest <laughs> of their lives. That's not how relationships work. And I bought into that sharing because I love you. I love you fat, bald, money, no money, driving a bus. I don't care. But you have got to be present like a normal guy some of the time. That's sharing. This is not sharing. This is leftovers. This woman is not happy. This woman is, feels ignored. Her life is empty. She is sad. You're married to that person. That's your deal. Yeah. You got to deal with that. Yep. Now, it might be that they shouldn't be married, which is what we're going to, you know, we're going to get there. Yeah. But it, it is. And this scene, I think this is a great scene. It is. Well, and this is the thing. He said, share me with the bad stuff. Mm -hmm. He didn't say the bad stuff is always going to win. Right. That's not sharing. I like that line from her because mm -hmm. she wants to know. Mm -hmm. Like she's asking, well, where have you been? And she's like, you don't want to know. I see. What I should do is uh, come home and say, hi, honey. Guess what? I walked into this house today where this junky asshole just fried his baby in a microwave because it was crying too loud. So let me share that with you. Come on. Let's share that. And in sharing it, we'll somehow... Uh, cathartically dispel all that heinous shit, right? To which her response is... Because you prefer the normal routine. We fuck, then you lose the power of speech. Because I got a hold on to my angst. I preserve it because I need it. It keeps me sharp on the edge. This is... Talk about intractable, mm -hmm. you know? Like, you're not watching this relationship going, oh, I see a lot of hope here. I think these kids can work this stuff out. <laughs> yeah. This is some bad stuff. There's always that moment in a relationship, yeah. right? Where you say that real truth. Yeah. And then it's done. Yeah. Well, unless you can... some, But that's the thing. Mm -hmm. If the relationship can't survive truth, then it might not have been that good a relationship. Well, Pacino saying what he says here, Vincent saying what he says here, like, that's the way I need it. And the way he needs it is exactly the, re the way that she right. doesn't like it. And so right. that's, that's a strong statement. Well, exactly. But there is some truth that kills relationships. That's Yeah. True. So, yeah. But also, hopefully, in relationships, you can reveal at least some of your truth. Sure. You know. Hopefully, most of it. Hopefully. Um, and then this speech of hers, man, mm -hmm. where she just sums him up. You don't live with me. You live among the remains of dead people. You read the terrain. You search for signs of passing, for the scent of your prey, and then you hunt them down. That's the only thing you're committed to. The rest is the mess you leave as you pass through. What I don't understand is why I can't cut loose of you. So she's already said it. Mm -hmm. This relationship is over. Yep. Ah. Uh. Back to Dennis Haysbert, he's drunk, he's sad, mm -hmm. he's with his girlfriend, and what she says is so great, because he doesn't understand why she's still with him, and she says, Because I'm proud of you. <laughs> You're proud of me. That's for whatever this guy has done mm -hmm. and been through that his wife is still or girlfriend or whatever is saying, because I'm proud of you yeah. and you see it hit him, mm -hmm. you know, and you see the tears and his, that's a great relationship. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's, it's 
it's powerful when your significant other can say that to you. Yeah. Proud of you is a big one. Yep. Yeah. Proud of you is huge. Different than I love you or I oh, like yeah. you or proud of you is different. Proud of you is a whole nother level. Yeah. Um, uh, we're back with Amy or we're back with Edie and Neil and we're talking about trips and, you know, whether or not we're good at meeting people. And he starts talking about taking a trip with her, I think, to New Zealand. He's moving fast, son. Yeah. A little too fast. You think? Yes. Well, this is the thing is that once that barrier breaks down, once between the, I, you know, I'm not, I'm alone, I'm not lonely. And then he's at the restaurant and then he calls her back and now he's like in, this yeah. is it, you know? And it's funny because if you said, if you, if you said to Neil, this woman is like a job, how would you approach it? He would approach it patiently and oh, with yeah. discipline and making sure to cover every base and protect himself in every way. And that is not his behavior now. Well, and I enjoy this, Steve, because it's also like Neil, it gives you a window into Neil's Neil's personal relationships are not normal personal relationships. No, it's, you know, everything has to move quickly because he wants to lock it down. He wants just to lock it down and make it go forward. And boom. let me tell you, as a man who. Moves quickly through relationships. Even this is a little too fast for it's me. It's fast. <laughs> well, particularly, you know, you're an international criminal and, yeah. and three days in your who, whose whole philosophy is based on not making connections. Exactly. And three days and you're in, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but he's talking about she's going to come with him, set up a studio. And what she asks is, are you married? Yeah. And he says, the last thing I am is married. I'm a needle starting at zero going the other way, a double blank. And all of a sudden, someone like you comes along. And it's interesting that her next line is, you don't know me. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's not the way that not knowing is happening. Right. You don't know Neil at all. And there's just this great, great look from from Robert De Niro. And he's just kind of, everything's right, you know? And there's a kiss. And you just think he thinks everything is going to be happy. Yep. We're watching some more surveillance. We got a lot of cops, including a captain, watching some building. And this is this precious metals place that they're staking out. A van pulls up. We see our team get out. And we're like, oh, shit. The cops are going to get them now. That's what's going to happen. Sizemore gets out, climbs up a pole. Chris is hammering at some lock. There's some technological thing that Sizemore is doing. Looks down at Chris. Gives him the thumbs up. We go into this place. I mean, these guys move in fast. De Niro walks in, uh, scans this place with his flashlight, walks down this very cool hallway lit with these pools of light. Um, And our cops are watching all of this through the monitor. Chris is drilling something. De Niro comes out, moves into the shadows. There's um, a cop inside the van who leans back against the wall. Yeah. Bang. That's all you needed. De Niro looks. And there's this great night vision sort of shot of De Niro's face as he's looking around. There's a long pause. De Niro walks back inside, goes up to Chris, and says, Walk! I'm right there! We walk! Now! Come on! And Chris is like, I'm, I'm right there. Mm-hmm. I'm right there. Needs and he that said, money. Yep. And he says, we walk. Come on. And does Chris argue? No. Nope. He gets up. They walk out. In the van, the cops watch as all of them come out. And now the question is, do we arrest them? They broke into this building. And Pacino's like, they're not carrying anything. Yeah. We're going to arrest them for break, you know, breaking. Being easy. Yeah. yeah, but that's, we're not going to, we need to get them. And of course, the SWAT captain or whatever, he wants to go. And Pacino, I love how he, he pulls rank on the guy. I'm not taking the heat from 
my bosses because you let them go. They're not walking. That's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to walk. This is my operation. I have tactical command that supersedes your rank. They will walk away and you will let them. Fuck. So Chuck Adamson and Neil McCauley. Neil McCauley was staking out a department store for a really big robbery. Mm -hmm. And Chuck had them. Knew that they were going to do it. They had staked out the department store. He knew that Neil McCauley had put tens of thousands of dollars into setting up this job. They go in with five guys. Chuck has his, the whole played lots of cops there. And right after Neil McCauley goes in, one of Chuck's cops, for some reason, decides that's a good time for him to go to the bathroom. So he gets up, walks to the bathroom, uses the restroom, flushes the toilet. Neil hears it. They stop the robbery and they all walk out, leaving tens of thousands of prep work behind and Chuck lets them go. Wow. So this is exactly based on something mm. that really happened with the real Neil McCall. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And now we're, you know, Pacino's out of the trucks and uh, there's just a great shot of Pacino in the parking lot and he tosses his walkie back to the cop <laughs> and says, back to work. So after all of this work and getting that close to catching them in the act, one stupid cop leaning against the van <laughs> blows it, and we're kind of back to square one. Yeah. You know? And I, I would say that I think this is a good point to stop. We're about halfway through heat. Yeah. Steve, we've got to explore your anger against cops. We've got to explore this. Why do you feel you, I'm angry you, against cops? It's been it's becoming a thing. Oh, that's right. I did. What, was, what was the other episode? Robocop. Oh, it's in Robocop. <laughs> oh, jeez. Listen. This is his Berkeley upbringing, people. He's got a hatred of the police. Man. I believe I've already apologized multiple times to the police force. <laughs> I do like cops. That stupid cop. <laughs> You know, I think we could trace this all the way back to L.A. Confidential. Oh, I said yes. some negative things about some cops in L.A. Confidential. I'm sure you did. I'm sure you There's did. There's probably some other police officers that I said negative things about. Basically, I think we can add to the disease of the film school asshole syndrome. <laughs> Is, uh, I don't know, yeah. film critic cop hater? Sure. I'm not going to cop to that cop to that disease. Yeah, I boom. do. It's not cop true. Cop to that disease. Yeah. Like it. Um, so on that note, I think we're <laughs> going to stop our exploration of heat right here and we will pick up, uh, next time. But, uh, in the meantime, you might want to visit our Patreon page, patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And you too, uh, can pick a film for us to review. You can visit us on our Facebook page. Just search for the cinephiles, C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. If you want to buy heat or any other movie we've ever reviewed, you can do it on our website, cinephiles.net. In fact, you can buy all your Amazon needs through our website. Any of that would help. It doesn't have to just be, you could buy, I don't know, you want to buy a new flavor of popcorn or perhaps, a. Uh, some sort of uh, medical device. Sure. Just click on that Amazon link and go buy it through us. A book uh, on metals. <laughs> a book possible. on metals. That's yeah. a great idea. Great. Um, Amazon did start as a bookstore. Uh, and when you're done with that, I think you should go over to iTunes and leave us a review. Go to subscribe to our YouTube feed. Leave a comment there. And when you're done with that, you can follow me on Twitter at SR Morris. John, where can they reach you? You can always follow me at The Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. And uh, Steve and I were talking before we recorded this episode. We've got some ideas for some Patreon stuff. So for those of you who have been our patrons for such a long time, we've got some new ideas of how to give you more content that uh, you'll enjoy through the cinephiles. And I'm looking forward to doing some of that. That sounds great. And I think that's it for this week. We will see you next time for part two of Heat on the cinephiles. Give me what you got.